Welcome to the Hedgemaker Broadcast. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied to the nation of Israel many long years ago. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. He also said that the Lord sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries, located in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is attempting to stand in the gap and make up the hedge in these days of spiritual compromise and theological apostasy. Our biblical and historical Christian heritage challenges us to fill in the gaps left by those who have moved away from their biblical foundation. Listen now as we build up the wall and make up the hedge through sound preaching from God's Holy Word. Mark 14, verse number 32. We're going to look at eight different scenes. This is the Lord praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. But eight different scenes. What he's going to do, he's going to take his disciples with him to the garden, and then he's going to leave the rest, of the, the major part of the disciples, take the three, go a little further, and then he's going to go off by himself. He's going to come back to those disciples and go off by himself and come back to those disciples. Anyway, I'm not sure I get all of those in there, but there's eight different scenes that we want to look at. And, of course, we want to draw some lessons from each one of those. The first scene... We're going to call it the scene for the need of prayer, the need for prayer. They came to a place, verse number 32 of Mark 14, which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit ye here while I shall pray. If Jesus needed to pray, we certainly need to pray. So the first scene or the first picture of the Lord's great need for prayer. And he has his friends, his disciples at his side. And it was Jesus' habit to pray. If you jump ahead to verse 43 of the chapter, you see where Judas knows where this place is. Okay, So it's evidently a common place. Jesus has a need to pray. And this particular garden prayer presents a great need for the Lord to pray. He knows, of course, from his divine side about the coming crucifixion The betrayal, the denial, he already prophesied that. The great sorrow that would come upon him because he would take the sin of the world in his body on the tree. So he's facing the cross. There is unbelievable human suffering and there will be a separation from God. Why hast thou forsaken me? All of that is coming up. Jesus knew about that, so he needed to pray. He needed the very presence and strengthening of the Lord. He also needed the close association with his disciples. But I kind of think it's interesting as we look at this story that uh, he doesn't take all the 11 disciples with him, but just three. And I'm really jumping ahead. That's the next scene. But all of us, every believer, should have a need for prayer, a place of prayer, I don't know that it has to be a specific place. The Bible talks about a closet of prayer, and some people literally have a closet, a place, prayer, in other words. Just do it, and we need that. It should be our habit to visit the Lord. Many of us talk about our problems with our friends instead of going to the Lord. Here's a time when the Lord Jesus needed to go and pray to his Heavenly Father about this upcoming 
sorrow of the cross. He was already prophesying this and telling his disciples about it, but they couldn't console him about this. And so we're going to see some of the prayer that Jesus makes. There's a verse in second, I won't make you turn to it, but First Chronicles 16.11. First Chronicles 16.11, it says, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. That's what we need to do in prayer. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. From a human perspective, the Lord Jesus needed God's strength for all of this upcoming event. Now again, we're in this last week of the Lord's ministry, right? I'm not sure what day you would want to put the garden prayer, right? But of course, it's before the crucifixion. It is evidently after the Last Supper. And so we move to verse number 33, and we get the second scene. The second scene is a scene of agony. He taketh with him Peter and James and John. There's limitations on this intimacy in prayer. Why didn't he take the other disciples? Just Peter, James, and John a little further. I think there's something to this. Every believer is a disciple of the Lord, but I'm not sure that every believer is one of those close disciples of the Lord. We need to be one of those close disciples of the Lord. So only three disciples were taken with him to get closer to the place of prayer. And he began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And then verse 34 says, He saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. So the second scene is a scene of heavy agony. I don't know that I've ever been there in prayer. We talk about the agony of prayer. An agonizing in prayer. That we are sorrowful. That we are sore amazed. Very heavy. These are strong words. One writer suggests that this word for being sore amazed has the concept of fright and horror. I suppose that could be true of the Lord Jesus. Again, from the human perspective, looking at the horror of the cross the bearing of the weight of the sin of the world upon him. We don't think in those terms. We don't really know. I can't even fathom what the Lord was going through in this garden prayer. But agonizing in prayer. Whatever we think about this, here's the perfect Son of God bearing all the sins, he who'd had no sin, bearing all the sins of the world and the judgment for those sins, all falling upon him. No one could bear that for him. You know, the Bible teaches us in the book of Galatians that we ought to bear ye one another's burdens. We sometimes have situations that we cannot bear alone. Jesus bore all of this by himself. None of these disciples, as close as they may have been to the Lord, Peter, James, and John, or any of the others, could bear this burden for him or with him, or even share it. And so he bore it alone. I think we have some hymns that talk about that, that he went to that cross alone. Second Corinthians, of course, 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. So here in Gethsemane, he was facing the loneliness of bearing all of this sin for us. 
solitary, even though the disciples are around. It makes us think we need to be sensitive to people around us. There are things that people bear themselves. Yes, Galatians tells us, bear you one another's burdens, but we really can't bear it for them, can we? We can help them, kind of like being an Aaron and a Hur, to help Moses hold up his arms. So we can help folks in the matter of prayer. We fellowship with them in prayer, but we really don't understand what it is that people are going through. Psalm 69 and verse number 20 talks about the reproach of that sin, the heaviness of it. Let me read that verse for you. Psalm 69:20. It says, Reproach hath broken my heart. I am full of heaviness, and I looked for some to take pity, but there was none for comforters, but I found none. He's all alone. So here we find in Mark, he says, sore amazed, very heavy, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. I don't know that I've ever been to that place. Sorrowful unto death. Agonizing in prayer. In Luke's gospel, Luke's corollary to this in Mark, Luke 22.44, it says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And then it says, his sweat, was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. That's how he agonized in prayer. Never been to that place in prayer. Agonizing in prayer over that. So the first scene is the need for prayer. The second scene, the agony of prayer. The third scene, verse 35. Well, let's read the end of verse number 34. He tells his disciples, tarry ye here, and watch. Okay, so he's going to go a little further away, and that's what he does in verse 35. He went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And again, verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me, Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. The third scene is the scene of relief, or the, the search for, the call for, the desperate search for relief. He went a little further. He's in agony. He's already in agony, already sorrowful, already sore amazed, already very heavy, knowing that all of this is before he even gets to the prayer. He's full of that agony. And so as he begins to pray, verse 35, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. The hour, of course, referring to the whole, all of the events of the cross that are about to be revealed here in the book of Mark. So a prayer for relief. This is our natural reaction when we're in trouble, right? We get to the place and we do get troubled I don't know if we get to the place of being in agony with trouble, but uh, we do. It's our tendency more often to pray when we're in trouble than when we do not have trouble. The Lord made this a practice to pray. He didn't come to this uh, Garden of Gethsemane to pray just when he knew that he was going to go to the cross. He prayed often. It was his habit to do that. So, Jesus got all alone And he prostrates himself before God. Luke says that he withdrew about a stone's cast. 
So how far can you throw a stone? A little further, the Bible says here, or Mark says, he went forward a little. So a little ways from the disciples, the three disciples. So he needed to be alone with God. That's where you and I need to go. We need to be alone with God. He was desperate. He fell on his face. When we prostrate ourselves, particularly in Bible times, that is a sign of a desperate need. The pressure, the weight of the coming cross, the weight of that sin, bearing it on him was heavy. It was unbearable. Do we ever get to the place where things are unbearable? We're thankful for that promise. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And we do have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, to help us. He says to cast all your care upon him. He says to take up his yoke. Okay, so we get together in the, the, to the yoke with the Lord Jesus, and he pulls the heavy part of the yoke. And so we do that in prayer. So this is what I believe the Lord was doing with God, his Father. Now, the point of Jesus' prayer was that the hour of the cross might pass from him. That's what he said there in verse number 35. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. The hour, of course, referring to the whole proceedings of the cross. He's definitely praying for God to choose another way to secure the redemption of the world. Now again, this is from a human perspective. As the divine Son of God, he understands, and I think we're theologically correct in saying there was no other way. There was no other way for redemption to come to the world, for atonement to come. No other way for sin to be covered but through the death of Christ. The sacrificial, blood-atoning death of Christ. So all of that has to, there was no other way. Jesus knew that, but I think he's praying from a human perspective here. Can you imagine a human being? He's the God-man right now. And so he is a human being bearing the weight, even God himself bearing that weight. Terrible agony, sore amazed, very heavy, exceeding sorrowful. And so he's praying, Lord, is there no other way that we could procure salvation for the sin of the world? Of course, there was none. And then in verse 36, he's praying, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. We're taught that Jesus and the disciples often uh, spoke and preached in Aramaic. Aramaic was kind of a Syrian language. Latin was the language of the Roman Empire. Legal, medical, Aramaic was more the language of the Jewish people and the Syrians and such. Hebrew, there's a big question as to whether or not the Hebrew language actually did die. Some people suggest that it did. I don't think it did. And Greek, of course, was left over from the Greco-Macedonian Empire, and it was the common language of the people. Okay, They didn't speak, even though it was the Roman Empire, they didn't speak... I'm talking about the whole empire. They didn't speak the Latin. Of course, the Jews would know Hebrew. So there's those four major languages at the time. And I don't know, this is my personal opinion about things. We, I was taught in Bible college, and many, many Bible college students are, are taught that much of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, they say, for instance, was written in Aramaic originally. I'm not so sure I believe that. But anyway, that's another story. That's another, another issue. Don't, don't believe everything you hear. Okay, check it out, get the facts, 
go back and, and you know, but there's a lot of things like that that are repeated over and over again without necessarily giving the historical uh, fact. Now, Aramaic was around. We know that. We understand that. Abba was one of those words, Aramaic words. Interesting how many languages of the world have similar words for father. We say father, but as the baby way, we would say what? Dada, or papa, perhaps. Very similar. And so Abba would be what you would say in an Aramaic home or a Hebrew home. So Abba, Father, a, a term of endearment. Another request here for the relief. All things are possible unto, unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Again, you can see a human and a divine aspect here. Okay, so he's crying out to his father for this. He says, all things are possible unto thee, referring to God the Father. So, it would be possible, in God's perspective, to have or find another way to atone for the world. But, of course, in the whole scheme of events, no, this is God's way. And so, all things are possible for you. You know, we pray that way. Lord, we don't know how this is going to happen. What's my situation? You can give an answer here, and the Lord is able to do all sorts of things. In Gethsemane, this garden prayer, Jesus knew that God loved him, that God had a way of uh, working out this plan, but he struggled in his flesh. This, to me, this garden prayer is, to me, a lot like Paul's discourse of amongst himself in Romans 7. The things I want to do, I don't do, I find the Lord doing this. In his spirit, he's saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. But in his human flesh, I don't think I can take this. Can't you find another way? And so we see, I think, the human and the divine coupled together in the Lord Jesus Christ in this prayer. So he also says that God asked God to remove the cup from him. The cup would be a symbol for, again, all that was to take place in uh, the death of Christ, the crucifixion, knowing, of course, that all of this would separate him from God. The Lord has to turn his back upon the Lord Jesus when he bore the sin. So, we find the divine nature coupled together with the human nature in the person of Christ here. Nevertheless, he says, not my will, but thine be done. Shouldn't that be our cry in the midst of prayer? We're asking for relief, right? Relief for troubles, from troubles. Agonizing perhaps in a prayer, but Lord, not my will, but thine be done. That's the bottom line. All right, let's move to the next scene. The next scene, verse 37, and he cometh. Okay, so now you're returning to the disciples. He cometh and findeth them, these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, sleeping. And he saith to Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? This is a scene of weakness. It's not a scene of weakness on the part of the Lord Jesus, but on the part of the disciples. Let's get the picture here. We have Jesus going with his disciples to the garden, asking Eight disciples behind, takes the three closest ones to him, and he wants them to pray with him. 
Not necessarily all night like he does. But what? One hour. Have we ever prayed for an hour? We utter these little short prayers, don't we? Not that time is going to get you merit before the Lord. But he's saying to these disciples, what? Couldn't you watch with me one hour? So this uh, fourth picture, or fourth scene, was the Lord's disappointment in his friends. We do this. We ask people to pray with us about certain things. right? And when we ask them to pray, we expect them to pray. And it's encouragement, excitement when they come back to us and say, well, well, hey, what happened to that certain situation? I was praying for you. So that's an encouragement. I think the Lord is looking for that. He's speaking to all three. Of course, Peter's answering here. He always seems to do that, doesn't he? He's the one that's the spokesman for them. So uh, he addresses him. He said, uh, now this is probably getting later at night. I don't know what time again, what time of day it is. Is it early evening? But Peter was asleep. And he addresses him by his own name, Simon, possibly because the flesh had gotten the better of Peter. And, of course, the Lord knows that Peter is going to deny him. Peter, couldn't you watch and pray with me? And so he says that, watch and pray. Watch and pray, coupled together lots of times in the Scripture. I don't have all those references. And he asks Peter and the other disciples just to pray for one hour. This is significant, seeing their failure and weakness. I believe we get power from prayer. Part of our weakness as Christians is because we're not a praying people as we ought to be. There's an encouragement to us not to be weak in our prayer life. The next scene is still kind of keeping with that. I want to move to verse 38. He says, Watch ye and pray. So it's like he's sort of speaking to Peter, although I think he's addressing all of them, and now he's turning and addressing the others. Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. So this, it's kind of the same scene, but we're, we're going to emphasize something else here, so we're calling it scene number five. It's the scene of ministry. The Lord is looking at these disciples. All right? It's kind of a unique situation here. The Lord has been agonizing about the upcoming cross and the bearing of the sin of the world upon him. And yet now he turns to Peter and the other disciples and says, Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. He's concerned about them. A lot of times in our prayer life, we get concerned about me. We pray, Lord, I need this, I need that. And in the midst of that prayer life, we need to be concerned about others. So this is the scene of ministry. Even under great trial, the Lord is concerned about the needs of his disciples. He says, you need to watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And of course, you be overtaken with that temptation. The spirit is ready, but the flesh is weak. So despite his own needs, in the hour, he's ministering to the other disciples. Let's move to scene 6. In scene 6, we go to verse 39. And again he went away. Okay, So he leaves his disciples. What, couldn't you watch and pray? And he left them again. And he prayed. And he spake the same words. Probably referring back to verses 35 and 36. Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Find some other way. He's agonizing in prayer over this. This is the scene of perseverance. Aren't we taught that when we taught to pray? To persevere? To keep on praying? I think it's what the old timers would refer to as praying through. We don't use that terminology so much. The Pentecostal, old Pentecostal people used to use it. And uh, praying to, through, what's that song? Pray till the light breaks through. Okay, that, that's the idea. Pray till you get an answer. Keep on praying. Don't quit because you prayed. Well, I prayed about it and the Lord never answered. Well, keep on praying. And we have the illustration of, I think it's a Syrophoenician woman who comes to that her master and keeps on coming and uh, is not turned away. And I think there's three times she comes. And she says at one point, Master, even the dogs will eat the crumbs from the table. So keep coming. Persistence in prayer. You want that relief? Do not be discouraged. Jesus did not turn away from God and go back and, and just quit. He pursued on. And wrestled with the Lord. We'll kind of talk about that a little bit when we talk about Jacob wrestling with the Lord back in Genesis 32. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. The concept there with all those words, ask, seek, and knock, is to ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. Not just do it once, but keep doing it. Colossians 4, 2 tells us, continue in prayer. Watching the same with thanksgiving. So, continued persistence in prayer. Scene number 7. Verse 40, And when he returned, okay, so he's away praying, now he comes back to the disciples again. And he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. They didn't know what to say. So this is the scene, again, not on the part of the Lord, but on the part of the disciples, the scene of the lack of dedication. They were rebuked about this in verse 37. What, could you not watch with me for another hour? They would not struggle to stand for the Lord. They're guilty. So they didn't know what to answer. They didn't know what to say. Luke 12:37. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Faithful. Verily I say unto you, I guess we could call this the scene of unfaithfulness. Verily I say unto you, Luke 12:37, that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Faithfulness in prayer. Peter tells us to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walking without seeking whom he may devour. And then scene number 8, verse 41. And when he cometh the third time, so he evidently went away and prayed again, cometh a third time, and he saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. It is enough, the hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of, referring to the, uh, Judas betraying him. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. This is the scene of submission. He's praying or asking the disciples to pray with them, but uh, he, they could not. Their eyes were heavy. So he says, sleep on. Go ahead and take your rest. Jesus' agony, his desperate need for friends to watch with him was now gone. The time had come. The hour was upon him. He was about to be betrayed by Judas. And so I think we can say that at that point, God gave him the relief of the soul that he asked for. 
He didn't take the cup away. He didn't make it possible for some other way for this redemption to take place. He was going to have to go through it all. But he evidently had peace at this point. Agonizing in prayer. Praying till the light breaks through is the idea, I think. Until the peace comes. That's the place where he's at in this. Submitting now to the will of God. He said that, didn't he? Nevertheless, not my will, but what thou wilt. He says there in verse 41, the middle of verse, It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. It's over. We're done praying. We have the peace of the Lord, and he could get up from his prayer closet and uh, move on. How did that happen? Because he agonized in prayer. Because he persisted in that prayer. I think that's how we get that peace. The relief that he asked for came because he was persistent. This is Dr. Lee Hennice, and we want to thank you for listening to the Hedgemaker broadcast today. Most of our broadcasts are portions of a sermon that I have preached the church. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries is the preaching, teaching, and writing ministry for myself. You can visit us on the web at hedgemaker.org. And let's be encouraged to stand in the gap and make up the hedge until Jesus comes again.